I uh, just want to make everyone aware. Uh, I'm going to be sharing a video testimony this morning. Uh, and it's from a family who lost um, their son when he was young. Uh, it's not graphic, um, but uh, for some it may feel uh, a little intense. And I just want to give you uh, that warning. Um, we're going to show our bumper video, uh, which is uh, kind of how we just prepare our hearts for worship. And then I'm going to show uh, the testimony video, at least uh, the first half of it. And uh, if, uh, if that's something that you just feel like you don't want to hear it this morning, uh, it's okay. You can uh, walk out during the bumper video, go grab a cup of coffee or use the restroom. And after about four minutes, you can come back in. Uh, and then uh, the second half of the video doesn't really engage with that. So uh, you'll be okay for the rest. Just wanted to give you that heads up. Uh, let's go ahead and prepare our hearts um, for what God may want to say to us this morning. We ask for love. And the world offers what it has, but it's fleeting and momentary. To find the love that lasts, we have to pass through the glittering town square and open the city gate. Walk toward the pastures of uncertainty onto a long, narrow road under a cold but starry sky into a barn that's never noticed into the manger that holds all of the love of God. See, we expected it at the big party, under the extravagant tree, beneath the biggest bow and the shiniest paper. Instead, here it is, tiny, humble, helpless, offered. We kneel, overwhelmed. We almost missed you even as we tried to celebrate you. Forgive us, Lord. Pour out your love so we can offer it to the world. Amen. Yeah. Um, suffering. <laughs> my first real suffering was losing my dad in 2014. And feeling that loss and feeling hopeless and wanting answers and then kind of realizing at the same time that, man, there's a lot of people that have been through this. Most of us are going to lose our parents or dad. You know, most of us will go through that. But not all people are going to lose their kid. Not, not everyone's going to bury their son. In June of 2019, we lost my son, River. I was outside playing with all three kids. The sun was really bright in the sky at 7.30 at night in Texas in June. And the boys were playing water gun fight. Probably two minutes going by, and I don't know if it was two or three minutes when River got through a locked, our locked pool gate, and we know now that he was filling up his water gun. I was in the back room, all I could hear was River and pool. And when I came outside, Granger was already doing CPR on him. And that initial vision of seeing your son, like your son lifeless. 
We learned later that it could have only taken 10 seconds for him to lose consciousness. I called 911 and we took turns doing CPR on River. Water was coming out, he was getting everything out, so we thought we were thought we were thinking we were making progress. But as soon as the ambulance got there, they whisked Granger and I away, and then they went to work on River. And they told us they got a pulse. I thought he was saved. I thought this is it, he's back. And they rushed him to the hospital and we followed him. Over the course of the next couple of days, things took a turn for the worse, which now we know is it's common in this kind of brain injury, being unconscious for that amount of time with no heartbeat. We had teams of neurosurgeons coming in and reviewing the data and looking at River. But he said there's zero, zero chance of brain recovery. Not even 1%, you know, not even 0.5%, he said zero chance. I opened his eyelids and I saw his eyes, and they were, they were, they were, they were gone. There was nothing in there. It was, it was completely lifeless. And I just couldn't wrap my brain around how your vibrant, happy child could go from that to nothing. And then we had to wheel him down the hall with his heart still beating. And then they closed the door. And that was the last time we saw him. I experienced the lowest of lows in the days to come. And those days turned into weeks and months. I dove more into devotionals. And I became a devotional junkie. You get your calendar and you get your date, you turn the page and you read this beautiful devotional with these beautiful, what I call coffee mug verses that sound amazing. And they are amazing. But they're like, they're like the salad of the meal. You know, they're like the hors d'oeuvre. They're not sustaining enough for that deep of, of pain. Amber and I went to therapy. We went to many therapy sessions and then went to a retreat and learned about our minds and our, our recall and our, our brains and brain spotting and dealing with post-traumatic stress and trauma, how to deal with that psychologically. And it felt good, but once again, it wasn't, it wasn't, satisfying a hunger that I now had. One of the things that Granger Smith, the dad, said near the end there, the faith in the midst of that kind of pain wasn't sustaining for that depth of suffering, that depth of hurt. Um, what do you do when your faith comes crashing into the realities of life? What do you do when your faith comes crashing into suffering? 
What do you do when your faith comes crashing into disappointment? Uh, Unmet expectations. And I'm not talking about, you know, like the barista at Starbucks got your order wrong or that thing that you wanted at the store is now out of stock. I'm talking about the kind of stuff that crushes your soul, that literally changes the trajectory of your life. What do you do in that moment? What do you do in those, when that moment turns into moments? This series on Advent, the season that we find ourselves in, we've been looking at it through the eyes of John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist is the forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah. He is uh, the one who comes to the people to get them ready for the coming king, the ministry of Jesus, and of course, ultimately his death and resurrection. He is Jesus' cousin, his blood relative. They know each other. There's a friendship between the two. And up until this time, for the last couple of weeks, there's been some questions that have been posed to John the Baptist as he tries to prepare all of us for the coming Messiah, for Jesus, for his arrival. Uh, One of the first questions that gets posed, and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, is uh, when all the people come and say, what do we do? What do we do? And he says, you need to repent. And we learn that repentance is not just some thing that changes how we act sometimes. Repentance is a heart change, a heart change that always shows itself in changed behavior, but it's not simply change. It's a heart change that shows that we have actually taken ourselves off the throne room or the throne of our lives and allowed Jesus to step into it. Remember, he talked about the fact that uh, a king is coming and we need to make straight the roads. We need to get ready, prepare the way for him. And there's some mountains that had to come down, some valleys that had to be raised up. So when the people came and said, what do we do? He says, repent. We need to learn to rely on Jesus, not on ourselves. It's not about how good we are. It's not about how hard we work. It's not about the plans that we make. It's a realization that I can't do it myself. I can't save myself. It's a humbling. I have to let someone else come and save me. There's a reliance and an obedience. I have to allow God to be God. I'm not the one who gets to make all the rules. If he's really God, I've got to let him be God. I've got to let him be king of my life. There's a humbling. There's mountains that have to be, raised, that have to be dropped. The last week, we talked about some of the valleys that need to be raised up, though. The valleys that get raised up when we actually put our full reliance on Jesus, when we come to obey him. The, the people actually came... Uh, in that same passage where they asked, uh, what are you, or excuse me, what are we supposed to do, right? And he says, repent. Uh, And then they come to him a second time and they say, "Um, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Is another question that John the Baptist, and he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not. But he's coming soon. He's coming soon. And we were reminded that when we actually Believe this, when we drop mountains, valleys get raised up as well. We begin to relax in Jesus and we begin to, we come to expect 
from Jesus. And I actually ask you guys to kind of wrestle with that question a little bit. Do you expect too little from Jesus? Today, there's another question, but it's not a question that gets asked to John the Baptist. It's actually a question that John the Baptist asks of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for us to just kind of catch up with a little bit of context back in Luke chapter 3. That's the chunk of scripture that we've been looking at as we've been looking at Advent through the eyes of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, we're going to start in verses 15 through 18. And we read this. The people were waiting expectantly. And we're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. That's the question. Are you the one? He's like, no, 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 I'm not the one, but he's coming. In fact, in the NIV, it says, uh, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. In the the Greek, the original language, it kind of gives this idea that not just will come, but is coming soon. John's like, he's it's coming soon, man. Like, y'all need to be ready. And they were, they were expecting, they were hoping, they were desiring. That's what Advent is really all about. It's kind of a season of kind of expectant hoping, like waiting, like where you know it's like just on the horizon, like it's just about to come, and like, yeah, let's go. And that's how the people were. And, and John's excited to tell them, like, yo, we gotta get ready. We gotta get ready. There's some hard work that has to be done. Right, when he talks about building a road for the king, he's not talking about like a physical road. He's talking about the roads that we have in our heart. What are the things that we need to do internally to prepare ourselves? And what happens when we actually do that? John is what psychologists would call uh, a highly individualized person, okay? That just means that uh, he doesn't act one way around some people and a different way around others. He knows who he is. He knows what he's been called to do, and he's completely comfortable in his skin. So it doesn't matter if he's talking to a Roman soldier, if he's talking to uh, uh, a religious elite, one of the Sadducees or Pharisees, if he's talking to an outcast, all right, uh, one of the tax collectors, or if he's just talking to just a a common, you know, lady or dude, like he's going to be the same. Even if he's talking to the king of Israel, whose name is Herod. In fact, we're going to find out that uh, because John is so highly individualized, he is who he is, doesn't matter who he's with, he's not afraid to say what needs to be said. Now, I think a lot of times John gets a little bit of a bad rap because we read him as like this crazy firebrand of a dude, like he's out in the wilderness, he's eating locusts, like he's wearing camel's hair, and he's like, you know, this heavy message, repent. I think though John's actually probably a pretty cool dude. He's just so passionate about, he doesn't care about what it looks like because he's just so passionate about what he's got to do. And he's vegan, apparently. He's eating locusts and honey or something, I think, so... John's just like, yo, 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 I love you so much. I have to be able to tell you this. You can't miss this. So John's not afraid to say whatever needs to be said. In fact, if we continue reading, 
verse 19, we find that this gets him into some trouble. But then John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch. Now let me explain who Herod the Tetrarch is, okay? He's actually a Jewish person, Jewish man. He has been set up by Rome to be the king over Israel, okay? So he's a puppet king, all right? Rome really controls him. But Rome sets him up to be the king over uh, the Jewish territories. That makes him incredibly powerful, okay? Uh, But he's also a pretty wicked dude. So John rebukes him because of his marriage to Herodias, which was his brother's wife, all right? His brother's married to Herodias. He's like, yo, she's kind of cute. I'm going to marry her, okay? Not cool. He does it. Not only that, it says, but all of the other evil things he had done, all right? So John's like, yo, yo, you need to repent too, King Herod. He'll say the same thing to a commoner as he's going to say to a king, all right? Herod added this to them all, all the things that John had been saying, and he locked John up in prison. Now, uh, Roman prisons are not like uh, prisons that we're familiar with today. Okay, you all have seen enough uh, TV shows. Uh, maybe you've done some ministry in a jail before. Uh, maybe some of you have actually seen the inside of a jail before. All right? Our prisons, as soul-sucking as they are in America, would feel like a five-star hotel compared to ancient Roman prisons. Ancient Roman prisons were brutal. Uh, they were filthy poorly ventilated, uh, almost exclusively underground. They're divided into outer kind of large rooms and inner large rooms. Uh, the more of a threat you were, the closer into the like inner rooms you'd be, which has less ventilation, less light. Roman prisons didn't have individual cells. Instead, they would rather have uh, the groups of prisoners would all be chained together in different rooms. Uh, they didn't have their own um, rooms, that would be. Uh, Not only that, but they were incredibly crowded, uh, we learn from history as well. Uh, Family and friends were expected to provide food for those being held. However, you're being held, okay, chained to a bunch of other people. Whoever was the most powerful person on the chain got their way, got the things that they often wanted. Uh, It says that prisons were designed to strip the prisoner, listen to this, of dignity and psychologically and physically torture them into confession. They were dark, small, dank, underground holding chambers devoid of bathrooms or sanitary measures. You can only imagine the stench, filth, and hellish conditions of an ancient Roman prison. And that's where the herald to the Messiah finds himself. Now, At the very beginning, I imagine John was probably okay with it. He knew it was unjust, right? But yo, Messiah's coming soon. He's my cousin. I'm the forerunner. They talked about me in prophecies for the last 800 years. I know what Messiah is going to do. Messiah is going to kick some booty. Messiah is going to beat down Rome. Messiah is actually going to take this fake king and become the real king. And he's going to rule on a real throne. He's coming on a horse with an army. Like, that's what he's about. That's what he's up to. I know what's going to happen. So I got to imagine John's probably sitting in there feeling pretty good about himself. 
Like, oh, man, see, they're trying to mess with me, but I know what's coming. It's kind of like uh, when I was uh, a few weeks ago um, at the Grand Valley football game. I think you guys know I'm the, uh, I've shared this before, I'm the chaplain for the football team, and um, they were in the playoffs uh, this year, and so whenever there's a, a home game, uh, I have the privilege of being there, I uh, get there uh, about, f- I don't know, four or five hours early, we have a chapel together, I get to go eat with the team um, for, their, for their team meal, have a couple of hours to prepare a couple things, and I pray with the team before they take the field, and then I get to be on the sidelines with the team during the game. That's awesome. I love it. I, it's such an honor for me to be able to do that. I'm a huge Grand Valley fan, but I'm also a huge Michigan fan. And Grand Valley happened to have a home game on the same day that Michigan was playing at Ohio State. And they were playing at the same time. And I couldn't watch both games. So I told my kids, I said, kids, uh, we're going to record the Michigan-Ohio State game. Turn off all your, like, little things online. Make sure you don't look at your phones. Don't pay attention to nothing. And we'll come home and we'll watch it together. And so they had done that. And I'm there at the game. And I'm telling everybody, like, yo, 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 if you know something, shut your face. Don't say it around me. Don't smile. Don't frown. I don't want to know nothing. I don't want to see nothing. I don't want to assume nothing. All right? So I'm, like, like literally telling. Now, I get all the way through, like, the entire game. Very end of the game, all of a sudden I hear over the loudspeakers, and an update on the Michigan. And I literally, I'm not even joking. I'm standing there by some guys. I threw my hands over my ears, shut my eyes, put my head down, and just started shaking and humming. Mm-hmm. I waited until I thought like all the reactions would go away. They finally did. I came back up. I had survived. I didn't know. GV wins the game. Go back into the locker room. I, I just get to uh, pray with the team. Uh, I'm leaving the building to get to my car, and this kid comes running up the stairs and says, did you hear the Michigan score? And I'm like, no, 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 don't say, like, don't say, I'm trying to come, and he just says, go blue. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm feeling like that's probably a good thing. So I get home, we turn on the TV, we're watching the game, my kids don't know anything, all I know is that I got to go blue. The end of the first quarter, we're losing. The good guys are down. Ohio State's winning 10 to 3. My kids are like, oh no, oh no. But me, I got that go blue. (laughs) <laughs> so they're like freaking out, but I'm, I'm feeling all right. Second quarter. Comes and goes, it's halftime, and guess what? We're still losing. It's 20 to 17. And Ohio State's offense seems to be ramping up. And they're at home. And I'm not feeling so great all of a sudden. And now I'm starting to ask myself the question, what did that go blue actually mean? Was that a go blue like, hey, we got him, go blue? Or was that a, yo, we're both Michigan men, so, you know, go blue. Like, no matter what, we're still go blue. And I'm starting to, like, wonder myself. And I think that's where we find John in our text this morning. You see, I bet that first week he was like, ah, oh, no, we good. I know the Messiah. 
I know who he is. I know what he's about. I know what's about to happen. I can hang out here for a little bit. But those days turn to weeks. Those weeks turn to months. Those months turn to seasons. We think that John the Baptist was in prison for somewhere between no less than six months and probably no more than 10 or so. And so he sends some messengers, some of his disciples, to go ask Jesus a question. And that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Read with me verses 18, 19, and 20. Jesus has been doing all kinds of miracles. His ministry has gone public. John, his disciples, have been telling him some of the things that Jesus has been doing. But John's still in prison. And John doesn't know it at this point, but John's never getting out of prison. John's going to spend the last six to ten months of his life in filth and darkness and stench, being chained to other people, and then he's going to have his head cut off, be martyred. And so John's disciples come to him, and they're telling him some of the things that Jesus is doing. And John says, go ask him a question. Read with me, verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus was doing. Calling two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask, are you the one who is to come, or are you the one who is coming soon? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? John, who it had been prophesied to his parents, before he was even born, before he was even conceived, who he was going to be and what he was going to do. John, who had been raised to understand this his entire life. John, who is in his late 20s and has had this beautiful, amazing ministry of calling the nation of Israel and anyone who would listen that the Messiah is coming. That same John is now wasting away in a Roman prison, and he's wondering, Jesus, are you actually who you said you were? Are you who I've been telling everybody that you are? Because John's life is not meeting up with the expectations that he had. You ever been there? Look, I get that it's Christmas, and like normally we're like, yo, 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 like, this is awesome, it's bright lights, and you know, look at snow on the ground, and, and, it's, and it's great, right? We love that. We wake, wake up, it's like, oh, it's like that, that nasty dirt patch that was in your lawn, right? Now it's like covered in snow, it's like beautiful, and the lights come on, and everything's bright and cheery, and you're like, yo, man, it's Christmas tea. Yeah, but you know that that patch of dirt still is laying there. The suffering doesn't care if it's December 25th. And many of us have had times, or maybe you are right in the very middle of a season of suffering, of disappointment, of unmet expectations. You thought it was supposed to look like this, and it doesn't. And as much as Christmas is great and joyous and all of that, there's still some questions, some things you're wondering about. Jesus, are you really the Messiah? 
or should we expect somebody else? And that's where John is at. And Jesus says something to him, uh, to his disciples to bring to John. Let's read that. It's not actually what I would have said. It's not exactly how I would have said it either, but Jesus has a purpose. Let's keep reading verse 21. It says, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back to John and report to him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He says yes without saying yes. Uh, there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, one is very practical. Uh, Herod already had John in prison. King Herod was incredibly powerful, and it had already come back some word to Jesus that King Herod wanted to kill Jesus. So it doesn't just flat out say, yes, I am the Messiah. Instead, what he does is... Uh, He does the same thing that John had been doing to everyone else. John had been using prophecies from Isaiah of the Messiah to pronounce that the Messiah was finally here. And so what Jesus does is he actually then takes three or four prophecies from that same prophet Isaiah to give to John's disciples to bring back to John by saying, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the blind can see, good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Well, what he's telling John, John would absolutely get it, is, yes, I am the Messiah. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. What Jesus says is, yes, I am, but John, you're going to have to hang on. You're going to have to hold on to faith. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on account of me. Because he is who John expected. He's just not doing what John expected. He is who John expected. He's just not doing what John expected in the way John expected it. What do you expect Jesus to do? What do you expect Jesus to do? Last week, we actually talked about this, that if we fully give ourselves to Jesus, if we make our heart prepared for him, lowering ourselves to let him be on the throne, that in response to that, valleys get raised up. We we get to relax in Jesus and we are to expect from Jesus. So what do you expect Jesus to do? Uh, Me, uh, when I first started following Jesus, I expected him to make my life better. That seems like a legit thing to expect. Jesus said that he came to give us life and life to the full. So my life ought to be better, right? And you know what? It was, it is, absolutely. Just not better in the way that I expected. You wanna know how Jesus started to make my life better? Uh, By making the girl I wanted to marry dump me. By calling me into a profession that my own dad wasn't originally excited about. By gifting me with the fruit of suffering. I've got five brothers and sisters that are already in heaven waiting for me. I've seen 
my brothers and sisters suffer in some of their last moments. I've seen the suffering in my family. And beyond that, Jesus has also allowed me to experience the pain of unmet expectations, dreams, unrealized, dreams that sat in my heart. I didn't even know that I had until all of a sudden I realized one day they weren't going to come true. This is how Jesus actually knew that my heart would be rescued from thinking that the world was all about me or that it was somehow up to me. Now, I'm not saying that God caused that suffering or that God wanted that suffering, but I am telling you that God used that suffering in my life to teach me how to see things from his perspective. And friends, there's real peace that I found in him. There's real joy that I found in him. There's genuine love that I have found in him, satisfaction and purpose that I found in him. Jesus hasn't been the savior that I hoped he'd be. He's been way better than that. N.T. Wright said this. He said, people today still judge Jesus by their expectations instead of pausing and probing into the evidence to see what was really going on. They do the same often enough with Jesus' followers, criticizing some for being too strict, others for being too soft, some for being too intellectual, others for being too down to earth. Yet wisdom can still be glimpsed by those with eyes to see. Following the Messiah, who is different to what we imagined, is always demanding, but this is the only way to the kingdom of God. Jesus had to teach the same lesson to his disciples. Uh, there's a time in Jesus' teaching uh, when he starts saying some pretty hard things. That if you want to follow him, you're going to have to give up your life. Take up your cross and follow him. The only way to gain life is actually to lose it. He started saying some things that many of the people who were following Jesus at the time didn't like. They were unexpected things. They wanted a Messiah that was going to ride in on a horse that was going to declare war with Rome that was going to kick Rome's butt. They wanted a Messiah that was going to sit on a physical throne. They wanted to rule alongside of him physically. And Jesus said, I've come for something way better than that. Way better than what you can imagine. But a lot of folks didn't like that. And so some folks actually began to leave him. We read this in John chapter 6. You're welcome to flip over there. Or it'll be up on the screen. John chapter 6, verse 66. It says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, you don't want to leave too, do you? Peter speaks up, answers him. says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where can we go? You alone have the words of life. They had to get to the point that they were willing to put aside their dreams and hopes and expectations, many of them unmet, and say, I will take you over any of that. It's the same lesson that John the Baptist had to hear, and it's the lesson that I think God wants to speak to us as well today. I want you guys to be able to watch the end of the testimony from uh, the Smiths, from Granger and Amber. We're gonna go ahead and show that now. And it felt good, but once again, it wasn't, it wasn't 
satisfying a hunger that I now had. One day I realized that maybe the Bible itself would be something that would satisfy this, this hunger. And the hunger was a hunger to diminish the suffering. As I read the scripture and as I absorbed on my own without an interpretation of a devotional or a, anything else, I then really started hearing the voice of God through the word of God. After the accident, Granger had said, you know, do you think you would ever want to have another baby? And I said, no, I said, absolutely not. I can't, no way. Like River was our caboose. He was, he was our last. I couldn't do that. I felt almost guilty, like it would be some sort of a betrayal to River. I didn't even know if I could have another baby because I had tied my tubes after River. In December of 2019, my son Lincoln said, I don't know why he said it. We were driving down a county road with, with no trees, it was only cornfields. And Lincoln staring out the window, he says, Daddy, does, does God make the trees or does man make some of the trees? And I answered right away and it was not my voice. It was, it was, it was not my thought. And I said, God makes all the trees, but sometimes man plants the seeds. And I was, I said it and it was kind of weird. And I was like, hey, that worked perfectly. That was, that was, that's a good answer, but I didn't generate that thought. And it's hard to explain, but I go home and I was talking with Amber. She said, you know, I talked to the doctor. There actually is a way if your tubes are tied, it's called in vitro fertilization, IVF. And she started getting emotional and she said, but I don't think I can consider IVF because who, who would we be to play God? How could, how could two humans through a lab fertilize an egg and play God? And she started crying and then, man, it hit me like a ton of bricks and I just started bawling. I looked at her and I said, I said, um, God makes all the babies but sometimes man needs to plant the seeds. June of 2020, they said they were ready to do our transfer, our first transfer. So we went in and it ended up working. We got pregnant in July. In the very beginning of that pregnancy, they couldn't find the heartbeat at first. Then the next week we came back and they found it. And then the week after that, they couldn't find it. So it was this, just this roller coaster of this up and down. And I remember thinking, if this doesn't work, I'm gonna be so confused. We had a miscarriage in August. Since River, I just said I was gonna surrender to whatever his will was, even if I don't understand it, no matter how much it hurts. So I just surrendered and I said, okay. Went back in December and Currently, I'm pregnant with another little boy. And it's, 
it is the one of the greatest definitions of grief and joy coexisting together. When I read the Bible, I felt the rhythm of that voice that says everything, everything is under his control and under his plan. God doesn't take away suffering. We all have suffering. We're all going to suffer. It's promised. But the power of God sustains us through the suffering instead of eliminating it. So many people have told us their stories of wanting to know God again and wanting to open their Bibles again because of our son, because of River. And there is so much peace knowing that there is a purpose and there is a plan made for good. And when you ask if anything good has come out of this tragedy, if other people are wanting to know who Christ is or if other people are, are wanting to seek God, that is good. To have Jesus tell us that in this world, we will have trouble. But then he says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And that is restoration, and that is healing, and that is meaning, and that is purposeful. As much as that hurts, he's working, and he is working all things out for good. If life isn't what you expected, just know you're in good company. Granger and Amber and myself and John the Baptist and Jesus' 12 disciples and even Jesus' own mother. I loved what Amber said at the end there. She said, uh, it's the greatest definition of both joy and grief coexisting at the same time. And maybe that's how life feels for you right now. Both joy and grief. Jesus wants to meet us in that spot. There's purpose in the midst of pain. There's development in spite of disappointment. There's satisfaction in spite of suffering. There's relaxed trust in the real tempest. It's why the writer of Romans said, we have a hope that does not disappoint. It may not look exactly like you thought it was going to, but it will not disappoint. Throughout this series, we've been asking a couple of questions, right? What do we do? Are you the one? And this week, uh, or excuse me, last week was, um, are you the Messiah? And then this week was John the Baptist saying, yeah, are you actually the one? And I just want uh, us to just take a second. We're gonna just close our service with two songs as a response. But before we do, as the band comes up, I just want you to look at these three questions. Where are you at today in these three questions? Is there something in your heart that's keeping you from welcoming Jesus in this season? Is there an expectation you 
uh, of Jesus that you need to have during this season? And is this season, is this a season that you just need to hang on to your faith? So I want you just to take a second, uh, just read over those. And then I just want you to sit with Jesus. Let him speak to you about all of those or one of those or anything that he may wish to say. Jesus, we give you permission. We give you permission to be the Messiah that we need rather than the Messiah that we expect. Let us be people who recognize your great love and the fact that you never give up on us. In Jesus' name.